Hi, I'm Derek McFadden, proud to be an author, a poet, and a lover of most things pop culture. I am also handicapped, born with a mild form of cerebral palsy. But please note, this podcast is not called Handicapped Writer. It is instead titled Writing While Handicapped, because that's what I do. Join me as we talk with folks in the book world. And this podcast looks at the world of literature from a perspective you haven't seen before. Welcome into a brand new episode of Writing While Handicapped. I'm Derek McFadden. I am the author of What Death Taught Terrence and the new book, The Santa Claus Agreement. I'm here with my friend, my very good friend, author, Bradley Harper. He is the author of A Knife in the Fog and Queen's Gambit, I mean, which is dedicated to some weirdo uh, <laughs> who does a radio show uh, or a podcast called Writing While Handicapped, which is very odd. Um, that's also me. <laughs> so, Brad, you have a new book uh, that is going to be out in uh, September. As we record, it's not out yet, but it will be out as as this drops here. So, the book is Reflections in a Dragon's Eye. Can you explain the title to us? What is the Certainly. title? Mean? Yeah, well, first of all, my second book was called Queen's Gambit. And right after that, the TV show came out. So, oh, my, so my book was just kind of buried and uh and all you know that confusion and the title didn't help me at all so i promised i would never ever write another book where the title could could be confused with anything else <laughs> but uh the <laughs> dragon's eye my my premise i'm a retired uh, physician and in medical school i learned of something called situational dependent learning sometimes if a person is drunk or high on drugs their brain will encode a memory that they can only recover if they return to the same physiologic state. So my basic premise is I have a homeless man, a former prize fighter, who is along the Baltimore Harbor on New Year's Eve, and he's watching all the fireworks, fireworks go off, and he hears a splash, and he staggers over and sees the body of a woman floating in the water right beneath this figurehead of a ship that's a mythologic creature, oh. and he thinks it's a, it's a, uh, a uh, dragon. So he rushes off, it slips in the ice, hits his head. A policeman finds him before he freezes to death. And in his drunken kind of semi-confused state says, you know, I, I saw a dragon kill this woman. And the policeman says, yep, right, got it. Uh, sure. <clears throat> yeah, takes him to the ER where he sobers up overnight. And uh, the next morning he's released. Meanwhile, young, uh, the body's found and uh, floating in the harbor. And a young, uh, young detective, she just made detective. She's been working profiling these missing girls and the body fits the profile of the girls that have gone missing over the last three years and <clears throat> so she and her supervisor think that well maybe the our killer has finally slipped up and left us a body we can investigate so she reads the field reports around the time that the murder would have taken place and sees this one from the cops as he saw this drunken guy say he, he saw a woman killed by a dragon so he has him come in first of all i should say at this point my homeless man, he thinks that this was a vision from God. And as a final final warning that you need to get your act straight or or that's it, game over. Right. So he, so he goes through, uh, he decides to uh, to quit drinking. He takes the pledge and he says, I'm going to do this the hard way because if I do it easy, I could do it again. So he goes through a delirium, delirium treatments and sees this dragon in his fevered <clears throat> dreams as, he's, as his body is being weaned off of alcohol and uh comes through the other side 
And then he's uh, called in and the psychologist hypnotizes him. And, and every time he gets close to the memory, the man just freezes up. The, the image of the dragon to him is so terrifying that he can't, he can't go into, into great detail. So the psychologist says, well, obviously he saw something. Right. Uh, our only chance to help him recover that memory might be to take him back to the harbor at night and get him drunk, which would, of course, then put his sobriety at risk. So the dragon, you could say, is the masthead. It could be the alcoholism, which which he's now fighting, or it could be my serial killer. All all of which could fit that that criteria, but but he has this demon within him, this dragon that wants right. to consume him and, and destroy his life, and the only way he can possibly help catch this killer is to make himself vulnerable to that dragon once again. Wow. And explain to us who Father Tomas is, because I loved him as a character. Oh, Father Tomas. He's a, yeah, I really enjoyed creating him. Father Tomas was a child soldier at one point in the Democratic Republic of Congo. He was basically kidnapped, and part of his initiation was he had to kill a man that was tied to a stake. And this is like his graduation ceremony, if you will. And so he did some pretty horrendous things as a, a child under the mm-hmm. age of 15. And uh, finally, at uh, cessation of hostilities, he's entered into the UNESCO Child Soldier Program and uh, comes in contact with this uh, Portuguese priest who is, treats him for the first time in years with kindness and, and respect. So he decides that the man that he was, or the young man that he was, could never atone for the terrible things that he has done. So he uh, become he converts to Catholicism and becomes a, a Catholic priest. And then his missionary work is to come back to the United States, well, to come to the United States and to uh, take care of the homeless people there, to treat the, the, uh, the poorest of the poor. So I know that, that you co-authored this book. What was your writing process with it? I mean, I've never co-authored. How was that different than writing two books by yourself? How was how the process different? When you co-author it was very much different you know i i was working with this uh i say young woman she's same age as my my daughters she's a family friend and she had wanted to be published and so i said well let's work on this project together had the idea for a time and so what what this would do is i would write the first draft and then she'd come in and she would add to it uh, I would say that a lot of the dialogue of my female detective, the, the scenes with her point of view, are largely largely written by my my, my co-author, and uh, and added a lot of depth to her character that you know I as a man would not always be uh, be sensitive to. So sure. I'd say it, you know probably more of it is my writing than hers, but a lot of, but some of the really crucial scenes are definitely hers. And another th- thing I liked is. She has more formal training than I did at the time I was writing this. So she a lot asked a lot of thematic questions mm. uh, that made me reconsider what I was writing. And I think even though, even if she didn't write that particular passage, the questions she asked me made me relook at certain scenes and write them better. Interesting. Yeah. I've never, I've never co-authored. I would be open to it, but it also is one of those things where, you wonder how a co-authorship would change your writing. It, it, like you said, it, it made it better. I always worry that, well, how much of it's mine, how much of it. But then the thing about it is when, I, when I'm when i with an editor, the book changes anyway, because, yes. you, you know, so 
I, I look at it a lot of times as like co-authoring probably is it is just another way of editing. Yeah. That's 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 how I would look at it, but I don't know if that's accurate or not. Well, I have always felt that a the relationship between the author and the good editor should be a, a collaboration. Yes. I'm very fortunate in my editors and they've always had a buy-in to my work and and shared my passion and wanted me to tell my story as best as I possibly could. Not just correct my spelling, but you know, ask me some questions. And uh, yeah. so you know, you've, you've edited some of my work and I've enjoyed it. It's uh, certainly made it made it better. So I, I think a good a good editor is truly a, a, a collaborator on the final project. Okay, so what uh, do you think, because I've seen um, versions of this story in, in your work before as, as an editor mm -hmm. of, of your, uh, I remember a short story, which was essentially this, but then you expanded it. Have Have you had this idea for a for a while? Because I mean, I remember reading it as a short story. It was very impactful, and then when you put it into this novel, it just it, it allowed for the the expansion of the of the main character Ko, who I really like, and and for his backstory. I guess my question is, how did you know? that a novel could be supported because sometimes we we think I got a story here but you're not sure if it's a novel or a short story how did you know there was a novel there well i initially did not as you say this started off as a short story and then when i was over in in edinburgh i made it into a short screenplay obviously not with all the moving parts that's in the in the novel but that's right got uh, distinguished marks in my master's program over there in the UK. Uh, but I just, I just felt like my characters were telling me there's more, there's more. And um, I decided to, to go with that. And I also thought that with having another writer that she could uh, contribute and see some things that I hadn't and that, that proved, that proved to be true. I, I would say that one of the most enjoyable things about working with, with her was her different point of view. The most frustrating thing working with, with her was she had a different point of view <laughs> because, you know, um, after a couple of novels, when you're writing a novel by yourself, you're God, right? You know, you, you don't have to ask anything of anyone, at least until you, until a publisher wants to publish it. But uh, but I was able to you know, do with it as I pleased, and then suddenly I had to say, "Is this all right? What do you think of this?" You know. So there was negotiations back and forth throughout throughout the the, the manuscript. Um, since I was previously published, I had a little bit more authority on the project than hers, but I always listened to her input and. The end you know she had i gave her final approval over everything i didn't put anything in there didn't keep anything in there that that she that she felt strongly uh, shouldn't should not be in there and a couple of things that she wanted to put in that i wasn't crazy about i said well okay fine you know uh, i can you know uh again i trusted her instincts and i think at the end it did make for a uh, for a somewhat better uh, better story uh, the uh, the absolute ending where i stopped it she added another couple of paragraphs which, ah. you know, and I thought, yeah, okay, I see that. It didn't even change anything, just kind of prolonged it a little bit, and I'm more to the point. But overall, I said, yeah, that's good. That that also works. And since she felt pretty strongly about it, I said, fine, I'll, I'll respect her instincts. More women read books than men. Uh, yes. And, and any writer who doesn't uh, respect their female readers is going, unless you write military history, that's about the only genre that still has more men reading than, 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 than women. 
Otherwise, you'd, you know, you'd better respect your female readers. And having uh, a woman helping uh, to co-author this gave me some insight, which, uh, which, which was good, but I think made, made for a better overall story. Yeah, I think otherwise you're biting the hand that feeds you if you do not respect female readers. I mean, honestly, that it, it, I know exactly who reads me in most cases, and um, and they are women. <laughs> Tell me about Marty, because Marty to me is one of your best villains. Oh, I really? Love, I, I I did. I loved. Him. I mean, I I don't want to say I loved him because he's awful, but <laughs> I understood the purpose. And so, uh, yeah. Tell me about Marty. Okay, Marty is the son of a man who owns an investment management company. So he's a stockbroker, investment uh, advisor, and he always thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, which in some cases he is. He's kind of lazy, mm-hmm. but he, but he's, uh, except, except when he's, mo- but it, except when he's motivated by, by, by greed, but he has a tremendous ego and he has to be in charge. And, uh, he kind of, he kind of stumbled into, uh, finding out that he enjoyed, killing people and so he's that's like his his passion he has a he has a, a boat where he uh that he uses so that uh, he has complete control of the, of the environment again a control uh freak and uh right. he, i want to know if you if you researched killers because often a lot of them have to have controlled environments to make to make their crimes work to do and, what they do and I felt like I felt like that was really well done here because it is a controlled environment. So I was curious if you had researched any of any of the serial killers. Well, I have, of course, I researched Jack the Ripper for my first novel. Right. Uh, but I wrote a series of uh, of uh, forensic articles for Sisters in Crime uh, newsletter and uh, profiled a couple of serial killers there. One particularly interesting guy was a, a man they called the Ice Man who probably killed close to 200 people. He was a hitman. Wow. And, and uh, I, he's called the Iceman because he killed one person, stuck them in a freezer for three years, and then staged a scene where someone would notice the body and think that they'd only been killed recently. The medical examiner realized that uh, the body was decomposing at a different rate. Usually a body oh. decomposes from the inside out. His the internal organs, because they stayed coldest the longest, were still relatively well well preserved, and then when you looked under the microscope, you saw the swelling of the cells, which happens as the cells freeze and the water inside the cell crystallizes. Mm-hmm. So he so he made that uh, determination that it was a staged staged uh, scene. But you know, even this guy, he never killed women. He never killed children. Oh. He was married had two kids of his own. So he had some sort of code of ethics. In fact, it's interesting. I read about his, his uh, job application for the mafia. Was it uh, the, the local Don who wanted him to become a hitman says, okay, we're going to go out somebody to drive by a park, see a man walking a dog. And he says, kill him. So he does. And the Don says, okay, you're hired. So, so uh, that was his, his job application. Wow. He was certainly capable of, uh, of uh, great cruelty and someone who uh, who angered him who challenged his authority or or you know made him feel inferior he would kill them more slowly than other people so you know he and yet he had a certain moral ethic as well so it's it's yeah I mean moral killers you know they're still human beings I guess they brush their teeth you know and and lace their shoelaces like the rest of us but 
they have this hunger, this darkness inside them that is fed this this one particular way. That, that's an interesting uh, phrase. If you said it, I mean, because to be a moral killer, <laughs> do you think that serial killers have no conscience or do they turn off the conscience for the time they need to while they're doing their stuff and then they have conscience the rest of the time? I don't, I don't know. What do you think? Okay, well, when I was doing my uh, my psychiatric rotation uh, in in my uh, military uh, in medical school, I got to do an intake interview with one guy who, in fact, I met two sociopaths. Uh huh. Then a week, I was in the army, and both of these guys were enlisted men in the military in in military intelligence, and they basically just didn't have any emotional connection to other people. Uh, the Iceman, he was he had a somewhat of a mercenary bent. He did kill a few people because he wanted to kill them, but the bulk of his of his murders were contracts. Okay. But, uh, but these two sociopaths, it was interesting. Both were in military intelligence, both were enlisted men. And in both instances, within a week of them arriving, I got a call from the commanding officer who said, how soon can I get this guy back in my back? He's the best man in my unit. So apparently being a, a sociopath is very useful if you're a spy or trying to find spies. Interesting. Okay. And and you had to you had to examine them and and and, and call them right for duty or or is that what Well, you yeah, did? that was that was basically to see yeah. whether they could stay in duty. The uh, the army medical department really doesn't do long-term care for active duty soldiers if they're not fit to fight in both instances i participated in their evaluation both were found unfit for for duty because they really had no no moral compass and oh. so both both were uh, were discharged for medical reasons and were put into the va system do you want to talk a little bit about the publication process for this book because it's a little different than your first two. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure thing. My first two books were traditionally published with, uh, through the help of my agent and her agent's assistant, who, uh, charming young man who has a podcast. And um, <laughs> thank you. And uh, anyway, so this one is. Um, so I was doing uh, my master's program over in, in England. I still had a, a relationship with an agent, and uh, she didn't want me to publish this book because. It conflicted with my with my brand. Up until then, you know, done historical fiction. So I said, okay. Uh, I had an agent who was who really liked the project, wanted to take it on, but I said, you know, I I can't I can't contract with you. So I said, but my co-author, we could just put her name on it, leave my name off. It's all good, and uh, she was happy to do that. But then he found out she lives in outside of the United States, and so mm. he said, represent someone outside the United States because they couldn't participate in publicity events and so wind up um, a man who was a former editor of mine who now has a small imprint his uh, imprint is Papillon du Père which I think means uh, Father Butterfly. It means Father's Butterfly yeah yes. Father's Butterfly okay anyway he uh, he had this small press he'd printed a couple of my Christmas things and and uh, and your stuff as well your your, your my Christmas. Santa Claus book yes your Santa Claus book and so he said he'd love to take it on and help grow his business. So I said, sure, let's do that. And so it's uh, it's with this small independent publisher and uh, we'll, yeah. we'll see. We get a really nice review uh, on Kirkus, which was uh, was gratifying. I had a lot of I had a lot of fun doing this book. It was the plotting was fun, the characterization, 
and uh, there's a great, uh, great chase uh, towards the end, a great fight uh, scene as well. So it was fun doing that. And, you know, everything I write, if I do it thoughtfully, it grows me as a writer. And yeah. so I think I'm a better writer as a result. I hope the book sells well. But, you know, if, if a few dozen people find it and really like it, you know, that's all right, too. I just figure the more I get my name out there, the more I get my work out there, the more people learn about my writing, the better everything does. Yeah, I think that's true. Are you a plotter or a pantser? I'm kind of a, I'm more of a plotter than, than a, than a, a pantser, although I'm always open to, uh, to uh, spontaneity. If I'm writing something and one of my characters does or says something, and I'll think, oh, now why did they, they do that? <laughs> and uh, sometimes it won't change the main plot, but it may add a, a, a subplot. So what I like to do is once I've got a v- pretty good idea in my mind, what the story is about. I write the ending first. Um, Edgar Allan Poe wrote about the unity of effect, that everything, of course, he was writing about short stories, but I think it's true in a novel as well. Sure. That, uh, so I decided what's the final image, what's the final emotion I want the reader to have when they finish the book. And the next thing I do is I write uh, a start, and that's probably the most important decision to make, I think, is where does your story start? And I like mm-hmm. to talk about the Odyssey. You know, they could have Homer could have started the Odyssey right after the the, uh, the Trojan Wars. You could have seen Ulysses putting together his crew, outfitting his ship. No, no, it starts off. He's already in in, in big trouble. He mm-hmm. uh, Homer cut right to the chase. You know, and so I try to start my story as late as possible, as close to the actual event that's going to change their life as, as possible. So so my reader doesn't get bored. I just uh, just got back from Killer Nashville. And it was a keynote speaker for the lunch on Sunday and listed some things which I found caused me to put a, a book down. And the very first thing was was boring. And I said the two more common reasons for something to be boring is either uh, there's a passive voice or there's there's no change. I used to think it was lack of conflict. But, you know, you can have lots of conflict with no change. Think of an old married couple. I don't know anyone like that myself. But uh, an old married <laughs> couple uh, that had, keeps having the same argument over and over again, but uh, nothing changes. That's not, that's not exciting. That's irritating. And I also mentioned that, you know, the average American has about a seven-second attention okay. span, and a goldfish has nine. Oh, Okay. Yeah, so you got to you got to keep feeding the fish. You know, you keep got to keep giving them something so they keep turning those, those pages. It's amazing to me that books that have been edited to death can still start in the wrong place, and that's one of the things in my first book that I tried to make sure of is that I wanted to make sure my character dies on page one, and I wanted to make sure like okay, that's when the story starts. The thing I did was in the first in the first draft of it, I started with him in a waiting room. Because in my mind, he's already dead and he's in the waiting room. That became chapter two because my editors said, if you start it there, they're just going to think he's in a doctor's office and that's boring. Mm. And I'm like, well, he's not in a doctor's office. He's in heaven's waiting room. And so that then I was like, okay, I'm going to change it up. You know. Well, again, in my talk, I said another thing that caused me to put a, a work down is, is uh, not having efficient word use. And that is certainly using 15 words when you can do it with 10 and a lot of filler words. Yeah. And I give the example of uh, Ernest Hemingway. You know, his uh, writing style is very lean. And that's because he started off as a war correspondent. So he had to send his reports in from the field by telegram. He had to pay for every single word. Oh. And then, 
then an editor on the other side, but, you know, fill it out. But I, I said, you know, make sure every single word is pulling its weight. If not, take it out. And so just, just, just pretend every word costs you 15 or 25 cents, you know, and suddenly you'll, your perspective uh, will get a lot leaner. The other thing I did, I did on this, uh, a book that I'm pitching right now, uh, a theft aboard uh, the, uh, the Titanic is I finally broke down and read the entire manuscript out loud. And oh my goodness, I found all sorts of repetition and that was totally invisible to me when I was reading it just with my eyes. Mm -hmm. But, but when you have to speak and use a different, uh, a different set of pathways in your brain and allowed me to look at it freshly. And, uh, and so I probably, I'd say after I read that, I probably took about six or 700 words out of, out of that manuscript of a, almost 80,000 word uh, uh, manuscript and made, made it uh, leaner and, uh, and much easier to, to read. I think authors have to read their books out loud. I mean, I, as an editor who, the way I edit, I have the book read back to me as I'm editing um, mm-hmm. through the computer. So I hear it read out loud. I hear all the mistakes and I can easily make the changes. But I think as a, as a reader or as an author, you have to, you have to be able to read your book out loud and then you can't the the main the main thing is authors cannot be too precious with their books <laughs> because and that's the biggest lesson i think for a, for like a debut author or somebody who's mm. just starting out a nov, you know a novice is um when they think they have written the best thing ever which you should think that mm. for you you have written the best thing ever okay but you haven't written the best thing ever <laughs> that's that's the biggest lesson I can I can have teach for new for, for new authors and, and that it's okay to change things. It's okay mm-hmm. to change things to make them better. But uh, what you said about Hemingway, it's very interesting that Hemingway had to pay per word. And then when you think about Charles Dickens, he was paid per word. <laughs> so that under that underscores the difference in those two styles. You have mm-hmm. a man who is paid per word, so he's gonna come up with every possible word he can think of to say the simplest thing. And then somebody who's afraid of being shot at. <laughs> and so wants to get everything he has to say down. It, it, it's, I, I wish I could see the two of them uh, discuss writing because yeah. it would be an interesting conversation. I actually think that uh, Hemingway would beat Dickens up, but uh, I, I, <laughs> I, I, probably, probably yeah. so. But you yeah. know, uh, uh, when I talk about uh, efficient word use, I say that uh, you know, to to my mind, the most powerful sentence in the entire Christian Bible is two words: "Jesus wept." Mm. Yeah. So, what is next for you? Well, I, I alluded already. I uh, my master's thesis was about a uh, an art heist aboard the the Titanic. And it's uh, polished up. It's ready to uh, submit. I just started submitting uh, yesterday, okay. and I'm um, and I was working on a submission earlier today because you know different agents have different formats they want. And I was, sure. I was working on the on the synopsis. They're going to give me a thousand words. Oh my God! I think I might be able to maybe hit five hundred, but uh, but that's a lot of fun. And I, I as soon as that is uh, tweaked. Uh, yeah. I have an idea for my next story, but you know, my first book, let's go back to knife in the fog for just a minute. Yeah. Uh, I'm working with a director in London 
who uh, has read the book, he is, his uh, previous works have been short horror films. He was looking for a, a book about Jack the Ripper, stumbled over mine and fell in love with it. So he's, uh, he and I are working together on a pitch to various producers in the UK. And he just found a producer, in fact, who's very keen on the work. And so what we're, what we're working towards is a short eight to 10 minute film, uh, a couple of scenes from the proposed final project. We can enter into film competitions, uh, film okay. festivals. That's the right word. And garner additional uh, attention. So I'm running the, the screenplay. I didn't really want to, but he said, well, give it a shot. You, no one knows the characters better than you did, do. I mean, and, that's true. Yeah, and uh, I have had some formal training in screenwriting. So I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And he really liked, liked what I did. So I should be getting some notes from him. So we'll be polishing up, up the script and do some casting for the rest of this year. And then early next wow. year, January, February, I'll fly over and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll film it. And then we've got the post-production work, which I'll probably not hang around for because I don't know how long that takes. <laughs> right. uh, and, you know, I'll leave that that to the director's vision. I don't think he needs me uh, at his elbow all the time. In fact, I told him, I said, look, if you're uncomfortable with me on the set during the during the filming, please let me know. I can always step out. But he said, no, he wants me there. And in fact, I'm going to get to uh, participate in the in the casting decisions. He probably then, wants you there to consult too. I mean, just to, yeah. you know, does this scene work? Does you know, because you see it all in your head as as yeah. the as the author. All right. One thing, oh, yeah. Ahead. One thing I would like to do would be to sit down with the actors beforehand, and right. I say the the scene I envision is where uh, they start off the scene. There's uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, Professor Joseph Bell, and Margaret Harkness, a woman who. Is uh, and they call themselves in the book. They call themselves the Three Musketeers. Mm -hmm. and each of them will undergo some change uh, during the scene, but also the three of them will enter as three individuals. And I want at the end of that scene them to leave as a team. So there's changes in values both individually and and collectively. And if I can communicate that uh, that effectively, then I think uh, I think we'll have a have a, a product that will help a producer. Uh, to see, yeah, this 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 works. If our listeners want to get to know you online, how would they do that? Oh well, uh, my my uh, website is www.b as in boy Harper H A R P E R author A U T H O R dot com. And I do a monthly uh, newsletter uh, because I'm lazy, and you probably <laughs> don't want to hear from me more than once a month anyway. Uh, just kind of update on uh, my various projects. Uh, yeah, so yeah, that that's how you can best find me, and uh, I always invite people to ask me questions, uh, sending questions, uh, and I'm happy to respond. Uh, that engagement is always uh, is a lot of fun. And then let me see. <clears throat> so there's the Titanic book. There's the there's the movie. I've just been named co-editor for an anthology for Keller Nashville. Wow, cool. Uh, yeah, so me and uh, Baron Bircher and uh, Clay Ake, uh, Stafford. We'll work together on this. And did uh, you almost so, call Clay Stafford Clay Aiken? I did. I did. Okay. Almost, I, almost, I'm, yeah. I'm gonna. I'm gonna leave that in just okay. so that <laughs> just so, because yeah, I might as you like it. as you like. So anyway, I've thought, <laughs> I've, decided, I've decided what short story I'm going to submit for that myself, and I'm gonna go back to Margaret Harkness, and she's gonna be the main character. And then let yeah. me see the next book I I plan on starting on once once I've got uh, my Titanic book put to bed is um 
one based upon my time when I was in the Army. For about three and a half years, I was the command surgeon with the U.S. Army South, which is the Army part of uh, Southern Command. And I spent time down in uh, uh, Colombia. There were three uh, CIA contractors held hostage by the FARC. I went down there to help uh, coordinate the medical support for a rescue operation that we, that we were uh, were uh, planning. And so uh, I want to uh, want to put a character based on me in there. His plane will be sabotaged, so it crashes, and wow. the FARC uh, pursue him. And he cannot go to the local authorities because they're either in cahoots with the FARC or so intimidated by them that they would turn him over if if he were to, you know, to... Uh, wow. Yeah, that sounds... So that's that's that'll be the next thing that you that you write as far as right, right, right. For the story, I'm going to use Homer's uh, the, the Odyssey, so the different stages of his journeys back home. And, got it. Uh, so that that's, sounds yeah, yeah. Sounds and cool. uh, I've I've already got the title. It's Bloodshit. <laughs> Bloodshit is a a card that I was issued when I was in Colombia. It said in Spanish that I was a representative of the United States government assisting the Colombian government, and if I requested help. Anyone who helped me would receive a cash reward from the U.S. Embassy. And I had four corners on the card. Each had a serial number. And I would tear the, if I needed it, I would tear the corner off, give it to that person. And then after, if they presented it to the U.S. Embassy, they'd get an unspecified cash reward. And so Bloodshed will be the title. And every time my character has to use one of those corners, it'll be a turning point in the story. That's so cool. Well, Brad, it's been great having you here. Writing While Handicapped is a podcast solely owned by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, The book is Reflections in a Dragon's Eye by Bradley Harper and Lydia Galehouse, published by Papillon de Pair Publishing. And for now, goodbye, everybody.